0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. A one, two. So there's a weird thing that's been going on with Ireland, something you can measure. In fact, it's so big that not measuring it would be irresponsible, but... And this is the weird bit now, but you can't see it. And it's enough of a deal that it's starting to affect the EU. Ireland's part of the EU, of course, and you'll hear about it later. Hello, my name's Richard Aidey. This is The Money. We'll also have an explanation today of something you've probably done, which is pay more for something than you thought you were going to pay, more than you'd been told that you would pay. We'll come back to that. Let's start with GDP, which is the standard measure of the size of the economy. It's grown, grown a bit, 0.4% in the June quarter. It's not thriving, but that underwhelming number actually tells us a lot. And Sherelle Murphy, Chief Economist at EY Oceania, is here to explain. Sherelle, thanks for joining. What does it tell us?
1: So a couple of things in there, I think primarily is telling us that we've got an economy which is slowing down and adjusting. So it's adjusting to a number of things. One, of course, is the COVID disruption, which has a very long tail. You know, it's something that we it does take us some time to adapt to. And by that, I mean the inflation that it caused and therefore the reserve banks need to in- increase interest rates and slow the economy. It's also showing us um, an adaption from the very high commodity prices that we have experienced um, for a number of reasons, but most recently because of the war in Ukraine and the fact that it pushed up prices to anything but Above what we could have expected. so they're starting to come down a little bit mm-hmm. so again a bit of an adjustment. It's showing us an economy which is um, still uh, experiencing extremely strong uh, labor market growth and actually still fairly strong business investment numbers yes. and strong government spending. so there's lots of different things going on.
0: you mentioned a couple of things there that were a bit brighter so uh, rise in business investment. Public investment, which is really mostly uh, large infrastructure schemes, and also the net exports show. Uh, so, commodity volumes up, prices a bit down, but volumes up, and services, especially education.
1: You're, you're right. There were three highlights, and um, if I can just touch on the the net exports first, because as you say, education and the the visitor economy. So tourism um, these are sectors which showed extraordinary growth really in the in the last um, quarter and really are the, the sort of heroes of the trade accounts um, of late which is which is quite interesting because obviously that's been very very poor so a very very sharp turnaround the business investment numbers are also pretty reasonable they're not super strong but certainly reasonable and i'm going to tie that together with the pickup in public investment because i think they're is a definite connection between the two. So, when you think about the corporate sector, it's looking at the economy. It's clearly seeing a slowdown because of the consumer, which is being affected by interest rates. But yet, the business sector does continue to invest and even the forward-looking indicators that we can see from the Capital Investment Survey are good. Why is that? I think it is partly because there's these strong fiscal tailwinds. So, in other words, the government is spending a lot and there's a lot of momentum from that sector flowing through to the business sector. You think about the the big spending areas at the moment, which, you know, the Treasurer keeps telling us, NDIS, health, defence, you know, these are areas where the the private sector is very much involved. Um, and those government spending numbers are are very strong. You know, we're looking at sort of 28-29% of GDP now coming from the from the government sector. Not just the commonwealth but commonwealth mm-hmm. states and local. So those things tie together, but I also think that the business sector is is um, clearly feeling reasonably confident because we've got strong population growth too um, well, and that's that's keeping things afloat
0: well it's it's definitely keeping things af- afloat i mean very strong population growth once you kind of average it out we've had two quarters of basically gdp growth being less than population growth so i think we now have a uh, technically got a per capita recession where we're we you know the economy's not in recession but on average we're all a bit worse off
1: Certainly on a per capita basis, it has come down. There's no doubt about that. And that's, you know, that is not an attractive number in in there. But I I would suggest that this is part of the adjustment story. This is a, a population which has been swelling because of new migrants. You know, clearly there are adjustments in that process. The new migrants, to a large extent, haven't even really kind of excelled beyond what a trend growth rate through COVID would have taken us to. So, in other words, had we had no sort of change in that trend pre-COVID, we're still looking at a population size, which is, you know, roughly in line with where we were at 2019. So, it's just that they've all kind of come really quickly. You know, there's a catch-up factor here. So that does create imbalances, and clearly these GDP per capita numbers are showing that. But, you know, there's, there's, there's huge positives from this. There's the fact that we have less tension in the labour markets in areas where migrants play a big role. So students often work in cafes and restaurants, and we, as we know, we had a real problem finding enough uh, people to work in that, that industry just a couple of years ago. It brings down the age of the population. It tends to make us a little bit smarter. You know, the IQ of the country goes up a little bit when we've got a, a, you know, we've got a lot of migrants coming in because they're often quite skilled and quite talented. There may be short-term adjustments, but over the long term, you know, migrants have been shown time and time again to be a strong addition to a population, Mm. and it helps us with the ageing of the population.
0: I was struck when I saw the number uh, the other day, it's sort of... Not a pretty picture, and you've talked a bit about why. But it's it's not terrible either, and it, it really shows that the GDP is doing more or less exactly what, what the Reserve Bank wanted it to do.
1: Mm, that's right. There's a few kind of um, te- I guess technicalities in these numbers as well, and I'll try and kind of explain these briefly. One is the fact that one of the big factors that dragged down the GDP number overall was because it was a change in inventories, which was negative, and it pulls down the GDP number. Now, you can have a change in inventories because of good reasons and because of bad reasons. So, a bad reason would be because essentially businesses sit on a lot of stock and they can't move it. A good reason would be because the um, demand has been very good and businesses um, sell more than they anticipate. And so, you know, there's a big change in their inventory stock. In this case, what actually happened was there was a lot more movement of goods and services for a number of reasons, including better weather. Um, Supply chains working again. In The Treasury even said that quarantine backlogs were cleared. That is actually clearly a positive, but it drags down GDP. So, we've got to kind of take that into account when we're thinking about the actual story of the economy behind these numbers. The second factor which you alluded to was the fact that the Reserve Bank has been trying to cool consumption because Mm. that clearly cools inflation. And that's right. That's exactly what we needed to happen. We've had a very, very strong period of consumption. Remember, everyone was, of course, buying uh, things for their home, new desks. Maybe they were doing some alterations and additions to their house. That has now started to, to fade very, very quickly. And uh, particularly, those discretionary type spending items have, have actually started going backwards in real terms.
0: So the aim has always been, and here's the phrases that you've heard a lot, for a soft landing, so pushing inflation down. To the target range without crashing the economy into recession, we're not in recession touchwood. And mm-hmm. the other thing Phil Lowe was going on about was that there was a narrow path to the soft landing. I kind of wonder if so far we're still on the narrow path to the soft landing.
1: Uh, absolutely, I think we are. I think we. I think the soft landing is looking, you know, closer and more likely. And uh, and it's it's exactly what the Reserve Bank wanted to happen. As you said, we've got inflation coming down. We've held on to most of the job gains. We've got a business sector that's still investing and a consumption pattern which is, you know, less buoyant than it was. You know, this is all the things that the RBA wanted to happen so that we could get through this period with uh, the minimal increase in interest rates. And so far, that's exactly what's happening. We don't know the ending here yet. You know, we're not quite there yet, but so far, so good.
0: As Philip Lowe says goodbye and with a warning today as he went, that things are going to get harder for his successor. Sherelle, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Richard.
0: Sherelle Murphy from EY. Now to the paying more than you thought you'd pay story. I'm sure you've done this. I know that I have. You want to buy something or do something and the price is, well, let's say it's $100, but that is not what you end up paying. You end up paying more. Ralph Steinhauser, who's at the ANU, has been looking at something
2: called drip pricing. So drip pricing is essentially when you have a headline or base price and extra unavoidable fees are added on while you're going through the checkout and purchasing procedure.
0: Right. So you, you, you start in to buy, I don't know, an airline ticket or a concert ticket. And as you progress, you find that you're being loaded up.
2: That's right. So there will be maybe in different steps, that's what we're calling it: dripping on, so extra fees are getting dripped on, but you end up with a higher price with extra fees included at the very end when you need to pay than you were originally thinking given the headline or base price. Mm.
0: We we may not like it, but do we know how effective it is from the, the seller's point of view? Does it work?
2: Oh, it works. So wherever... Uh, retailers or sellers in general get the opportunity to use them they will they are very profitable for them we know from some studies that have been conducted in the US by StubHub which is a reseller for concert tickets or you know events and so forth uh, they have uh, done an internal study but they found it increases their profits by 20% so that is they're having a lower headline price get more customers in that way and then they add on these extra fees later on in order to ramp up the total that people have to pay for things.
0: So Ralph, why does it work? Because we always get the choice whether we want to continue. It's, it's shown to us, there it is. It's more than we thought it was going to be when these prices are, are dripped up. Is there something that kind of keeps us going?
2: Yeah, there's, so there's a few concepts that from psychology that we attribute to playing a role here. One of them is the our myopic behavior, so that we always discount stuff in the future and put a much higher emphasis on things that happen right now, which means if it's a task or a costly thing that we have to do, we try to procrastinate that and put that in the future. If it's something nice, we reward ourselves right away rather than waiting with the reward, that type of thing, right? So which leads to, for example, procrastination. And so when you have gone through a lengthy checkout procedure, you might not feel at all like... Uh, doing that right away again and spending another half an hour or so to do so and so you might procrastinate that or you realize and then just rather instead of incurring those extra costs right away just bite the bullet and pay the extra fees that you didn't expect. And so this is one of the factors that contribute to us not wanting to go through the checkout procedure Mm -hmm. again.
0: And it's not just is it about that desire for immediate rewards it also plays on our fear of, of losing out. This is about another psychological concept called loss aversion.
2: Yeah, so loss aversion is um, particularly relevant for ticket pricing and events and so forth. The idea or the concept from loss aversion is part It's part of prospect theory. So Kahneman and Tversky's prospect theory, uh, very influential papers uh, from, from the end of the 70s. And uh, the idea is that you judge things relative to a reference point. So how much you gain or lose relative to that reference point. That reference point could be a status quo or an expectation that you have. And we really dislike losses relative to that reference point, but twice as much as we really like gains. So we really, in other words, we really hate losses.
0: Yeah, we actually, I understand we actually feel more pain from losing something than we get pleasure from getting the same thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. So how does that work when, say, booking tickets to a show. That how does loss aversion actually feed into the the matrix?
2: Yeah, so if there is a really large add-on fees, uh, large drip prices added onto a concert ticket to the initial headline prices that you see, then, and, and this is the case in America, where this is up to fifty percent that's being added on. this luckily some good um, sort of consumer laws in Australia that prevent it from just being anywhere near as extreme as over there. But if you have fifty percent extra added on, you can see how that makes a difference. So the following happens: you have all these different categories from the cheapest tickets to the VIP tickets, and you have a certain price budget, right? You might be thinking, you know, how much do I have left in my spending portfolio for entertainment this month or this year? And therefore, you choose the sort of highest category that you can afford, not realizing there might be a substantial extra uh, fee that's being dripped on later in this checkout process. Then you go through and you, by this stage, you have thought about sitting in those seats and seeing the person from close up and so Mm -hmm. forth. And this changes your expectations and arguably changes your reference point. So now when you go through the check procedure and it gets 50% more expensive, it actually would be more than you would normally want to afford with your budget for entertainment. In that case, it does feel like a loss going back to a lower category ticket because you already got used to the idea of actually being in, this, in those nice seats. And therefore, you since the loss hurts you Doubly hurts you so much more you're willing to stick with the higher ticket price and cough up the extra money uh, Just to not go down so to say
0: yeah as you say that I can kind of imagine going through it Are we kind of habituated to this now if I buy a ticket to go to the cinema or if I go to the football There's always a booking charge as well, and I'm used to that. It's not the price. that's advertised But there at the end it'll pop up. There's a little booking fee which in no way represents the cost to the vendor of actually providing this ticket, which they're going to send to my phone. But I just pay it because it happens all the time. I'm, I'm used to it.
2: Yeah, so in Australia we have the problem that these fees are really small and they get added on, sort of, you know, on every every occasion, and so we just truck it off. But there is a little bit room for uh, potentially a bit better consumer protection for those events. So, for example, that my daughter went to the Barbie movie and they went for Tuesday price tickets, thirteen dollars, and they got thirteen percent added in terms of a booking, as you say, booking fee, which is only $1.65, went it's small, but per seat, and no reason to not advertise that upfront and include that in a ticket price, but rather hide it as a per seat booking fee at the end, which the vendor already knew in the beginning was going to happen.
0: You'd have to say obscuring that final price is deceptive. Are there any moves to protect consumers against this, this practice, which seems to really pay off for the, for the retailer?
2: Yeah, so as I mentioned, the A Triple C and generally the laws that we have in Australia against misleading prices being displayed is, is pretty good. Therefore, we are in much better situation compared to our US counterparts, for example, where we have these sometimes fifty percent being added on to a concert ticket and so forth. But it still remains these uh, nibbling smallish instances where there is an unavoidable fee added at the end um, which they seem to get away with so there could be sort of that little bit extra room for making a difference there for customers another area might be shipping costs could uh, be a part of a dripping fee in particular when I mean there's they're unavoidable um, arguably they have the you know they need to be there but they often vary in size substantially depending on which store you're purchasing in. In that regard, uh, there could be some form of potential protection there. One more, the the US, for example, is considering the, the Department of Transport over there, is considering to force airlines again to include seating and maybe even luggage in their advertised price. So you could think of... Uh, having at least some seats that you can select from for free rather than charging every single seat that you may select and and uh, sort of trick you t- into selecting and paying that extra fee.
0: Ralph, you're an expert in this, you're extremely aware of it. Do you find that knowing that this is what's happening, does it give you any protection? Does it give you a kind of superpower to avoid doing it?
2: Superpower, I wouldn't say. So so what you what you can do as being aware of these sort of things, you can for example, with concert tickets, um, you could uh, quickly go through the checkout, towards the checkout, and see if there's any extra fees being added on, and then changing the ticket rank or the the seats that you may want to book or similarly for shipping costs, uh, before you go through a lengthy filling your shipping basket with a lot of add-ons to the item that you were lured in with the headline price of, of buying, you could actually quickly go and see what the actual shipping costs are. And if they're substantial, unexpected, you might change uh, the the shop that you go for and uh, sort of not continue Uh, sort of adding things to it. This
0: is the route you're going to have to go down. Go and have a look first. That's right. Ralph, it's been a kind of cautionary tale, and I'm sure that people listening now can really relate to this. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Ralph Steinheiser is in the Centre for Social Research and Methods at the ANU. Earlier, we were talking about the latest GDP figure and what it tells us. Economic data like the GDP is hugely important. It feeds into government decision-making and economic planning. You need to be able to rely on it. But right now in Europe, in the EU, there's an issue with some of the economic data, and it's because of Ireland. Martin Arnold has been writing about it for the Financial Times.
3: Yeah, so this is something that is becoming a, a growing frustration here in in Europe, particularly for economists and people trying to figure out what's going on in in Europe's economy. And and what's happening is that there is some really very big volatility in the numbers coming out of Ireland. Now Ireland's a relatively small part of the European economy, it's only about 4% of GDP of, of the of the entire eurozone and yet it's big swings in things like industrial production data and GDP is causing big volatility in the end uh, eurozone numbers and that's that's really uh, confusing a lot of people people are actually calling for changes in the way that that, that data is presented
0: what is driving these big swings what is it about Ireland? I'm assuming it's not just a lack of competence at putting together economic statistics.
3: No. It's a lot of this is to do with how Ireland has increasingly become an attractive place for big, particularly US multinationals, to base their international operations, particularly tech groups and pharmaceutical groups, the likes of Intel, Meta, which is which is Facebook, Google, Pfizer. These huge US multinationals base a lot of their non-US operations in Ireland, not only because of the tax rate, but the tax rate in Ireland, the corporate tax rate, is very low. It's 12.5%.
0: Just to be clear, Martin, what is happening is that uh, companies like Apple making phones in Mm. China or or Pfizer uh, manufacturing its pharmaceuticals in uh, low-cost countries and, and selling them around the world. The book value of that is is coming back through Ireland um, because of fundamentally tax purposes, and it's going on then the Irish stats as industrial production.
3: Uh, a lot of it is, yeah. They use contract manufacturers and they use so-called merchanting arrangements to have products made in, in these low-cost countries, often in Asia. But the intellectual property rights yeah. and a lot of the income uh, flows back through the Irish subsidiaries back to the uh, parent companies in the U.S.
0: So, how much of an impact does this have? What sort of, what are the numbers on this?
3: Well, it's huge. The Irish Central Bank has come up with some alternative measures of national output, and they've calculated things called modified gross national income, which tries to strip out the effects of these multinationals and gdp for ireland which includes all of this was close to 500 billion euros in 2022 but if you once once you've stripped all of the uh, impacts of the, the multinationals and 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 their activities and and, and income that doesn't uh, benefit irish jobs and uh, irish incomes then that falls back down to something like 250 billion so nearly half of the GDP. They also looked at exports. So the physical cross-border exports out of Ireland in 2021 were just over €40 billion. But in the national accounts, goods exports were reported at uh, €71.3 billion. So there's a big gap there, which which is explained again by the fact that some of this uh, intellectual property movements and and, and activities are, are counted as exports, even though these products aren't actually being made in Ireland.
0: You've already said it, this is affecting the EU's stats, but you also said Ireland's only responsible for about 4% of, of Euro, Euro GDP. So what, what? how are the numbers playing out at that European level?
3: It's causing a lot of volatility because you don't, You know, you're seeing such big swings in the Irish numbers that it's becoming increasingly difficult to discern the the true performance of the Eurozone economy. And you're getting some economists who are even saying, well, when the European numbers are produced or the Eurozone numbers are produced, they should strip out or they should offer those numbers excluding Ireland in some cases, because the, the volatility coming out of Ireland is just is too much, and it's warping the numbers. And it sometimes means that GDP is inflated. And also, there's big revisions. So we've just had the Irish Statistics uh, Agency come out and revise their estimate for the second quarter GDP numbers. Now, they initially said that they were up over 3% quarter on quarter very, very strong growth, that meant Ireland accounted for about half of the total growth in the Eurozone, um, but they've now revised it down to only 0.5% growth. So that probably means that there'll be a big downward revision of uh, Eurozone numbers. The biggest effect that this has is on the industrial production, figures, because they uh, we've seen uh, 14 times in the last 24 months we've seen that those Irish numbers have double-digit moves, either up or down. And this is really causing a headache for for anyone trying to, to figure out what's going on in the Eurozone economy.
0: If, if there's a, a widespread understanding that this is going yeah. on, is there any way of, of kind of saying, well, here's our numbers, we're going to put an asterisk there until we get the full ones from Ireland? Is that one approach? Or is there a, a kind of EU to Irish pressure to sort this out in another way.
3: I'd be very, very surprised if the EU decided to exclude Ireland from economic uh, data releases. It would be pretty extraordinary. Yes, it would.
0: It would be a very political act in a way, just to, to make the economists happy.
3: It really would. Now, maybe they could add a footnote, you know, alternative measure of Ireland's industrial production that that tries to adjust for these things, you know, maybe there would be a way to find that and they could add a footnote that showed it uh, stripping out some of this extra volatility from Ireland. This is a very diplomatically delicate subject because the Irish will argue and they say, well, these US multinationals, they also have factories in Ireland and they make a lot of things in Ireland and they do truly export a lot of products and they employ a lot of Irish people and they pay Irish taxes. And they're a big benefit to us. So you shouldn't um, say that it's all just artificial. And that's true. They do. But they do also an awful lot of this contract manufacturing and and merchanting, which is, is, uh, I would say, artificially Mm. uh, inflating the numbers. There is one other way that this could be resolved a bit. More easily which is going on at the, the OECD uh, it's stalled, but there is uh, an effort to try and reach uh, an agreement on a, an international minimum level of corporate taxation. even if that happens it's not going to have an overnight remedy to this to this problem.:
0: It is a problem, and, and thank you very much for uh, writing about it and bringing it to our attention.: No problem. good to talk to you. Martin Arnold is the FT's bureau chief in Germany's financial capital, which is Frankfurt. And that's it for now. The money comes to you from Gadigal land, Sydney. The program is produced by Ian Coombe. I'm Richard Ailey. And enjoy this.
1: Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music and more.